There is an old story about a rabbi who was counseling a couple uh, for marriage counseling. In the old story, it was a man and a woman who came, but the gender doesn't really matter. So the woman comes in to see the rabbi first, and she spills out her version of their problem. My husband this, my husband that, I'm doing my best, but he's such a problem, and it's so difficult, and I'm having a hard time, and so on. Meanwhile, the rabbi's wife is listening through the door. At the end of his session with the woman, the rabbi tells her that he understands and that he sees her point of view. You are right, my dear, he says. Then later, the husband comes in for a session and he also shares his side of the quandary. I work hard all day, I'm trying to get along, I'm doing my best, I'm having troubles at work. She doesn't seem to understand. It's very hard. And the rabbi listens and nods his head and says, I see what you mean, you're right. And so the husband leaves. And after the husband leaves, the rabbi's wife, who's heard all of this, pulls him inside and says, what are you doing with this couple? You told them both that they're right and that that cannot possibly be. You're not helping them solve their problem. What you're doing doesn't make any sense. And the rabbi listens to his wife until she finishes and then nods his head and says, my dear, you are right. <laughs> There are many stories like this, or stories that have similar themes. And one of the classics is the story that Rumi tells in his poem of the elephant. And this story, by the way, exists in a number of different cultures. Rumi is a Muslim, and he tells the story about a Hindu bringing the elephant for people to see. It's an interesting twist. So the, an interfaith twist on this story. So in Rumi's version, the elephant is brought into a dark room where it cannot be seen at all. And people come in one by one and touch the elephant and give their report. In other uh, versions of the story, the, this, the elephant is brought to a village where the uh, inhabitants of that village are blind. And so that's the way the story gets constructed. So whether the room is dark or the people are blind, either way, the story is telling us that there's something about the human condition that keeps us from seeing the totality of reality. Amy's story is another one, right? That explores that theme. So we, the people in the village could not see both sides of the hat at the same time. They saw a piece of it, but not the whole thing. And of course, this is really true in some very physical ways. For example, we only see part of the spectrum of light. We don't, we just see certain parts. Of physically, see certain parts of reality. And they tell me there are all sorts of waves flying around all the time that we don't see. 
but have an effect on our reality? The stories also say that we literally see the world differently. And recent brain research suggests that this may be true, that we, because of the differences in, the, in our brains, we may literally see different things when we look at the same scene. We just don't see the same thing. If you ask police and lawyers, they will tell you that eyewitnesses are notoriously undependable when they identify someone. All kinds of things can influence the way we might identify someone, including presuppositions, uh, similarities between the different subjects, having a different point of view, having some loyalty in the situation, some kind of bias perhaps, maybe pressure that's put upon people, the effects of drugs, the lighting in the room, whether a person is fresh or tired, one's own wishes and desires, there are all kinds of things that could influence the way we perceive a situation. We're really complex beings in that way. So is that the end of the story? We're just different and that's it. That's the end of the story. But these differences in perception have serious consequences in, in the world. Uh, in, in our political world, we see, I think, how different parts of the elephant are claimed by different parties and candidates. You know, you have uh, a group that says that the elephant is a rope. And so you can claim that territory uh, in our political world, and there will be statisticians who can tell you how many people you can get to vote for you if you go with the rope theme, you know? Or if you want to go with the fan theme, then they can do analysis and say, well, the fan group, you know, is 14% of the population. So if you talk about the fan, even though the other 86 may think that makes them, why is that person talking like that? Why in the world would they ever say that stuff? Because 14% of the population believes the elephant is a fan, that's why. Then you have people who, you know, support the, uh, the snake view of the elephant. There's a certain percentage. And then there's people um, who, uh, think the tusks are spears. By the way, if you put those two people together, they form a coalition called the Snake Spearians. <laughs> I just could not resist that. It is as if the elephant gets carved up in a way that's advantageous to different groups of people. And it's a fascinating thing to watch how that is going on. And there are very sophisticated models of how to use these differences in the way people perceive reality in the quest for power and influence. So, does that mean that everyone is equally right? Does that mean that, you know, the people who see the, the spear and the people who see the tail and the people who see the fan, are they equally right? 
In the Parliament of the World's Religions, which a bunch of us attended this past summer, uh, they talk about certain experiences as a kumbaya moment. The kumbaya moment is when everyone joins hands together. You don't have to sing kumbaya, but you can have that, you know, you have that moment where everyone is together and the differences are transcendent and you feel a sense of connectedness. What a, what, these are wonderful, precious moments. And they are vastly superior to war or to terrorist attacks or depression or all kinds of other things. They are moments of transcendence. And yet, we know that the couple who came to see the rabbi, even though they may join hands for a moment, they still have issues. They still have real issues that divide them, as our society has real issues that divide us. So it, it doesn't mean that the problem is solved. If some people in society think that health care is a human right, and some people in society believe that universal health care is slavery, then there's a long way to go. That's a big gulf. It's a big divide. How could we be so far apart and what can we do so that we can live in such a world? Rumi says, if we could each light a candle and go into the dark room together, then we would see what reality is. It's a very hopeful ending of the story for Rumi. He's got a hope ending. In one of the other versions of the story I am familiar with, the end of the story is that they all go their way believing that they alone have the truth. It's another ending of the story. And that seems pretty descriptive of our human condition. But it's not, it's not a hopeful description. So there are hopeful things happening in the world that, that give us a sense that progress is being made. One of them is the advance of science, which for many Earth citizens seems like the one thing that cuts through all the illusions of our perceptions to some kind of objective truth. And I think there's a lot to that. And yet, it is also true that scientific studies come to different conclusions. One of my favorite is the world of, of studies that recommend what we should eat. They don't agree with each other. Uh, some diets are low carb and emphasize protein. In a lot of these diets, lean meat is considered a good thing. Then we have vegan and vegetarian diets that discourage meat, both for health and ethical reasons. And some diets are low fat. And I actually lost weight once eating low fat, but then I found out later that that was not a good thing to do. And there's a, there's a group of scientists who say that eating low fat is why Americans are obese. That's, that's a study that's out there now. So even scientific results don't all say the same thing. And it is also clear that money influences scientific research in all kinds of ways, just like it influences politics. 
has to do with what gets funded and by whom and for what purpose. So it's not, I would say it's not yet clear that science will lead the way into some kind of complete objectivity or even if such an objectivity is possible. It's just not clear. The advocates of reason also disagree with each other. Every day, rational people come out and make arguments about things, and each one has an argument. They have their talking points. There are thinkers like Jonathan Haidt and others who argue that we do not make decisions rationally as human beings, that our primary decision-making path is by emotion. Our, our wonderful friend Linda Lyman is going to talk to us about this at some point because she's been studying some of that research. That we make our decisions emotionally and then we construct a rational argument to support that decision. There's a lot of research on that. So all this reason that we think we're doing might be somewhat of an illusion. I like reason and I'm in favor of it. But I'm not convinced that reason will tell us the true nature of the elephant. I invite you to go take three or four philosophy classes and then come back and tell me if life has been explained to you. But you have a good time. I'm convinced that the search for the elephant will require all our human capabilities. So that would include science, reason, but it would also include feelings, emotions, art forms, activism, negotiation and dialogue skills, and different kinds of commitment known by names like faith and dedication and spiritual disciplines. So it will require communal decision-making. Rumi says we have to all take our candles and go in. It will risk it will involve risk-taking across the boundaries of religion and race and nationality and language and culture. It will require all the faculties of human nature, I think. All of them. Rumi says we have to go into the room together. We need to learn to explore together, even with people who do not see reality the way we do. This is a major skill set for us to develop as human beings, is to learn how to dialogue with people who right off the bat do not see the same reality we see. They do not see that reality. What is the reality that a young person sees that makes them want to go join ISIS, for example? There's, I, I can't justify that on any level whatsoever, but I understand that somebody must be in a reality where that looks like the right thing to do. Somebody must be in that, see that in the elephant. The recent interfaith unity event at the Islamic Foundation is the other side of the coin. It was by all accounts a wonderful experience of crossing boundaries and being in the room together with people who we don't share the same presuppositions with, many of them. But having the experience that one could transcend those boundaries and 
have a sense of a unity beyond all these differences. That it is possible to do that. It is a possibility. For me, the experience of the, experience of the parliament of the world's religions is another one where I feel that sense of possibility that we could, even with very deep differences about our sense of reality, be together with people in a way that feels very peaceful and very productive at the same time. And so these encounters give me hope that we can move beyond these separate boundaries and have a shared experience that leads to peace. I want to let you know that there's a new dialogue event being planned in Peoria for May 16th, and we will give you information about that, it, with the group that organized the meeting at the mosque. It's going to be at May, on May 16th, it's going to be at the Civic Center, and it's going to be a dialogue event. And I can't tell you too much more about it at this point, because I don't know that much more, but we'll certainly let everybody know um, what's going on with that event. They're going to try to move beyond that first stage of acceptance, that first stage where you're just so happy you could be in the same room together and feel good about being in the same room and feel good about hearing other leaders and you think, oh my God, it's possible we might get beyond all this. And then you have to move into another stage, which is how do you start talking about the couple's issues? You know, when are you going to talk about that? So we're, that's what's happening in Peoria right now. It's the people venturing into the dark room with the candles of our newly acquired goodwill. That's, that's the candle we walk in with is that goodwill. Will there be an, enough light? Will the elephant bolt and trample us all? Or will we be amazed with new insights? We don't know the answer to that question. So this is the great adventure of human life on this planet. This, and, and John Shelby Spong said this so beautifully yesterday from this, from this platform. This, this is the adventure of human life. Can we, through our cultural evolution and our development and our goodwill and our intentionality, come to a point where we can actually have enough common experience to live together on the planet? So that's the big question. That is absolutely the big question. And it cuts across all the lines of faith. It doesn't matter if you're a Hindu or a Buddhist or an atheist or, you know, a Seventh-day Adventist. It just, it cuts across all of them if it's, if it's going to work. He said it so eloquently. Can we get beyond all that tribalism? Spong says, by the way, something similar to what the transcendentalists say that I talked about last week, is that by pursuing our own individual path with integrity and intentionality and expanding our consciousness on our path, that leads to universality. And so people don't have to change their paths to do that. You don't have to convert anybody. There's no conversion in this. Nobody has to be, switch from being a, a Baptist to a Buddhist. You don't need to do that. You can if you want to, but that, that's, that's not necessary. So, is everyone equally right 
in this great discussion? I don't think everyone is equally right, to be honest with you. I don't think Bishop Spong thought so either. What he said yesterday is that our evolution will lead us in certain paths and we will abandon other paths. So for example, we're not gonna go back to slavery. We're not gonna go back there. We're not gonna go back to uh, a secondary status for women. We're not go so at some point there, there were parts of the elephant that saw that differently, but we have moved in our evolution so that now we've got a new consensus on that. We're not gonna go back to persecution of LGBT people, although that one's not totally settled yet, but it's going to be settled. It's on the path. You can, I mean, you can just see how that's playing out. It's, there's still squawking and moaning and groaning about it, but that one, it's gonna settle out because our path leads us in this evolutionary way and we're not gonna go back. So at some point, certain things seem like just two different positions, but at another point, the consensus emerges. And if we stay in dialogue and bring our candles and have goodwill during that process, then that, see, the, the truth and justice will sort out. They will sort out in these questions. And then you'll have that, you'll have a consensus on that. And you'll be moving on. And the person who held the contrary view in the past will not feel hopefully like they've been trampled on. You know, when King was fighting in the civil rights movement, you know, everybody said, we should get those racists, you know. And King said, no, we're not trying to get the racists, we're just trying to convert them. We're just trying to change their point of view. It's not necessary to go to war and win the war. So not every position is equally true or valid, but in the process, we go into that dialogue with goodwill because that's what works in that dialogue. And since we have experienced that moving beyond stage, even here in Peoria, we've experienced it, then we know that it's possible. We know that that can happen. We know that we can do it and that it brings us a sense of fulfillment and peace. Therefore, we will not agree upon all the important issues of the day, but if we stay in dialogue, if we hold the candle and go in together, then this process of truth finding will be accelerated. And as long as we stay in that dialogue, we will stay out of war. Because dialogue is not war. In this kind of relationship, we can see ourselves slowly moving beyond claiming a particular interpretation of reality as our own private territory and defending it by any means necessary. We don't have to hang on to that. We don't have to. We know that that's possible. Therefore, let us light our little lights that we have to share in our tradition and our human experience and move thoughtfully and compassionately together into this adventure of humanity to see if we can live together.
on our ability to move forward into such a common vision rests the outcome of the story.